Hey there, it is time for another Sermon MP3 from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. And this is Sunday, March 20, 2022. And today we are dealing with our series called Finding Your Keys to the Kingdom of God. And our message is entitled, The Centrality of Christ. Well, I'm not too sure how this last week has been for all of you, but it was a little bit of a uh, big week for, uh, for us geeks out there. Uh, the James Webb Telescope began to send back images back home, and uh, this is one up here on the screen. I know it, it's not that spectacular, is it? It looks like just one star, right, amongst a couple of little ones in the background, but if you can see, there are some galaxies back there, but this is just the, one of the last aligning images. So as they put the telescope up and they align all its mirrors, uh, it's to help uh, focus it and bring it all into perspective, but there will be more spectacular pictures to follow, I guarantee. If you've seen any of the Hubble telescope pictures, uh, these will far out, out, out pass those. Now, whether you're a geek or not, uh, you have to agree that the telescope has been a revolutionary instrument used in helping us know things about the creation of the universe that we are in. The first person to apply for a patent for the telescope was a Dutch eyeglass maker, Hans Lippers, Lippershen. Uh, he was uh, a part of a group of people that, that, that lived in a small community, uh, but he was an eyeglass maker, and he made the, this telescope in 1608. Now, his uh, telescope could magnify ob- objects, get this, at three times the power of the human eye. To us, that's no big deal. We've got telescopes that will do that. I think our iPhone can zoom in better than that. But uh, back then, that was a revolutionary thing. Now, the images that he provided wouldn't, wouldn't be that spectacular to us, but there were others. There was even another eyeglass maker in his hometown, a guy by the name of Zacharias Jansen. Oh, those Jansons. They, he says that he was the one who created the telescope first, but of course there was an ongoing controversy. But whoever did it, it doesn't matter. About a year later, Galileo, you've probably all heard of Galileo, Uh, He heard about the invention and he decided to design his own without ever seeing the patent or the instrument. His telescope could magnify objects 20 times the power of the human eye. Now using his telescope, Galileo gradually became convinced that the Copernican model of the solar system was the correct model. I'll explain that in a second. But he released a paper in 1616 documenting this in an academic review and Nicholas Copernicus, who was a mathematician and a Catholic canon, 75 years earlier proposed that the planets revolved around the sun. The planets all revolved around the sun. Well, you and I would think, yeah, that's true, but that was not the, that was not the Catholic Church's position at the time. Uh, that was opposed to the Ptolemaic or the, the geocentric model, which proposed that the sun and the planets all revolved around the earth. The Catholic Church proposed that belief. They believed it was supported by the Bible. Now, of course, we've all heard that the Catholic Church took Galileo to court on this, and there was a big trial about it. But it was only after a half a day court case, not a 17 year trial like you'll hear on the History Channel, Galileo was convicted not of heresy, again, like you hear on things like the History Channel, but of, it says this, he was convicted of strong suspicion of heresy which really only forced him into house arrest, which really wasn't all that much of an arrest and a a house-bound kind of a thing anyway. But the church enforced it. 
And it took a long time, almost 400 years, before the Catholic Church came to realize that they needed to apologize to Galileo on this. But it was Galileo's crude telescope that changed the course of astronomy, science, and even religion. And of course, since then, we have had many other types of telescopes, earth-based telescopes and space-based telescopes. Optical telescopes, radio, microwave, gamma ray, x-ray, ultraviolet telescopes like the Hubble telescope, and infrared models like this new James Webb telescope. Did you know that there are about 125 space-based telescopes and observatories right now in our outer space? You see kind of a picture of some of them up here. Now, half of them are not active anymore, so now they're just space junk, but the telescopes that are up there help us to zoom in on new discoveries all the time. We just don't know about it. We just never hear about it. In fact, we've learned since Galileo that the Earth and the planets don't just revolve around the sun, but, around our, but our entire solar system is revolving around our Milky Way galaxy, kind of just like this. It's moving it's moving very fast. We are traveling, hurling through space at 490 miles per hour. Do you feel it? Do you feel the sway in your pew? Yeah? Getting a little sick? Yeah? That's fast. Then it will take our sun approximately 225 million years to make a round trip around our galaxy. All because we found out through telescopes what this is all about. So the telescope has certainly been a revolutionary invention that has added to our understanding of the universe that God created. And I'm grateful for it. Now, one that has become... Uh, there's, a, there's another revolutionary idea, though, that, that came along a long time before the telescope ever did. It has become one of the ontological meaning-of-life questions and discussions that really affects every one of us. We've all wrestled with it. The revolution began when Jesus came out of nowhere and he began to announce to the people living in a very small, insignificant speck on earth known as Galilee. And if you'll follow with me in Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1 verse 14, we read this. After John, that is John the baptizer, was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. He said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. In Luke chapter 4, he, he, he buffets this in another gospel saying, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns because that is why I was sent. But because that announcement came, another question. This is the question. And this is the question that has become revolutionary, a question that even you wrestled with. Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? There have been many who have tried to defend him. Uh, there have also been many who have tried to denounce him. I want to propose to you that the answer to this question changes everything about us. It changes how you live your life. It changes how you die your death. It changes how you and what you hope for. It changes how you view and value yourself. And it also changes how you value and view and treat others in your life. It changes how you plan out your day. And how you set goals for the future. Who is Jesus? 
Literally, the answer to that question will change everything for you. And Jesus understood that. And that's why, after spreading this message of the kingdom of God, Jesus asked his own disciples that very question. So this is a people who said, yes, Jesus, I believe you and I will follow you. And this is what he said. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, verses 13 to 16. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. How did Peter and the other disciples come to believe this about Jesus? Well, let me take you through a few scriptures that will help to not only reinforce what they said about him, but also reinforce your belief and your understanding in who Jesus is. And that Jesus truly is the center of everything. This is our first point. Number one, Jesus demonstrated the power of God. Jesus demonstrated the power of God. Right from the very beginning of their experience with Jesus, right after being called to follow him, the scriptures tell us that it was at a wedding in Canaan of Galilee that Jesus worked his first miracle. He turned water into what? wine. So we're quite familiar with that. In John chapter 2, we have this accounting of it. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So along with the message of the kingdom of God came a demonstration, a display of the power of God in his life. That's important. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 to 25, it says this, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, that was to the north of Israel, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Everywhere Jesus went, there was a demonstration of the power of God in his life. And of course, that just drew attention to him, right? Because that wasn't normal, was it? Normal people didn't just heal sick and crippled or demon-possessed people. And just in case you think that throughout the, Nor- the, the Roman Empire that they were just a bunch of superstitious, backwoods, primitive people, no. In that day and age, the Greco-Roman Empire were the pioneers of the sciences and medicine and engineering and dentistry, metallurgy and astronomy. So they could tell the difference between a miracle and a, and a magic trick. The blind man in the village suddenly sees... The man that the kids all called Hopalong just to tease him and then run away because his leg was paralyzed since birth. All of a sudden, he could walk without a limp. 
the woman that had had a skin disease all over her face and arms and legs, all of a sudden, her skin was all clear. All because Jesus touched them. And what answer did Jesus give in response to the miracles that he did? It says in John chapter 10, verse 37, Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles. You know, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. Imagine someone walking through the streets of Saskatoon doing this. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be enough to get a few people's attention? Be all over social media, wouldn't it? Wouldn't, wouldn't you want to listen to what somebody that could heal people, wouldn't you want to listen to what they said? Can you imagine a miracle worker in the city of Saskatoon that is preaching a message and all of a sudden the, the, the authorities and his critics, they kill him. Just like he said they would. And even though his critics ensured his death by putting guards around his grave, this person rises from the grave. You imagine that, that if that happened today in our day and age, what kind of news and attention that would draw? That's power. And what if that person existed 2,000 years ago and his life is chronicled in a book somewhere? See, time and distance, it kind of creates skepticism, doesn't it? Just as much as you hearing that somebody was healing sick people downtown, that would create skepticism, maybe even in you as a believer. But because it happened 2,000 years ago and we have a book chronicling it called the Bible, it still creates skepticism even today, even in some believers. How do we know what is written in this book is real? We wasn't there, right? But what I've come to learn was that Jesus didn't just come with power from God as his credentials. He had way more credentials than that. Second of all, Jesus revealed the rule and kingdom of God. Jesus revealed the rule and kingdom of God. I was a young dad once. I know I got the grandpa sweater on now, right? But I was a young dad once. And I remember standing in a pool, arms stretched out to my kids saying, it's okay, I'll catch you. Jump into the deep end, I'll catch you. But of course... Even though I'm their dad, that's the deep end of the pool. They know that in their head. And of course, with hesitation, there's a lot of unknowns there. And could I, their father, be trusted to keep them above the water? Life can be scary and difficult like that. And not just for children. Jesus knew that, and he lived this life that we live. Even still, when he called others to follow him, some hesitated, didn't they? But with every demonstration of the power of God, they knew they could trust him to take the plunge themselves, to become his followers. And only when they believed and took the plunge could they listen to him and hear what his message was. The same is true for us today. Before we believed in Jesus, the challenge was, can I trust him, right? Even when we were young in our faith, there were times where we wondered if we could trust Jesus with the tough stuff, you know? 
Faith in Jesus isn't easy. So in our attempt to make faith a little bit more manageable for us on a day-to-day basis, there is the temptation to make it about something that we can do for ourselves. And so we, we make following Jesus about rule management or sin management. We make the message of Jesus about rules and right behavior, thinking that's how we can gain God's favor and his ongoing blessing in our lives. Before I decided to follow Jesus, I investigated a number of the major faith, uh, world faith uh, religions. And all of them have writings, all of them have teachings of wisdom and of morality. Most of them have the golden rule in them. So if we try to claim that people can only be good with Jesus, then our message is going to be very easily refuted. But that wasn't Jesus' message. Even atheists can be good people, can't they? What are we doing morally better than all the other isms on earth? I met a Muslim man once, not that long ago, who was raising money for cerebral palsy. I met an atheist who was involved in trying to end human trafficking in Asia. We Christians are not the only one who are living good lives and doing good. That is not our evangel. That is not our good news. But see, the message of the kingdom of God that Jesus preached and delivered on was not that God can make us better people, though, that, though he most certainly can and does. Jesus' message of the kingdom of God, the good news, is that there is... Well, let me just read it for you. It's from Luke chapter 4. Jesus says it himself, verses 19, 18 to 19. Now, when you read this, you might be mistaken a little bit as to what the context is at first. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me he, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Why did Jesus come? In Jesus' own words, he came, sent by God, the Father, manifesting the divine power of God to make humanity free from all kinds of things. That was his message from the Father that regardless of of class and economic position, moral quality, or physical health, God wants to grant humanity freedom. Freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But not just freedom from injustice. A lot of social justice warriors want to make this all about social justice issues. But freedom that comes from the Father with great favor is something altogether greater than just social justice. That phrase, the year of the Lord's favor, is a reference back to the Old Covenant. We spent quite a bit of time in the last month looking at the covenants that God brought his people through. But under the covenant of Moses, there was prescribed a time called Jubilee. Where every 50 years, all debts are forgiven, slaves are given their freedom, prisoners are given a second chance, family property is given back to its original owner, and fields are given a rest for a whole year. It was meant to demonstrate Israel's life and dependence on the rule of God rather than on the rule of man. Though it was commanded by God that they observe it, It was not known whether or not the Jews ever actually observed it. 
The rabbis of late try to justify it by saying that the jubilee year only applies when all those who are meant to live in Israel, that is all 12 tribes of Israel, do in fact live there. According to Maimonides, Maimonides, that's a hard word to pronounce, a respected Jewish scholar basically of the 12th century A.D., he claims that the jubilee years were counted to the end of the Babylonian exile and the construction of the second temple. This is before Christ then. But they were never observed. So by the time Jesus came along, jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, was really just an idealistic Jewish pipe dream. And every Jew, though, knew what it meant when he said it. It meant that one day, God was going to make all things right again. That his rule would reign, and that Messiah, when he came, would impose that rule upon the world. And so to hear Jesus, a person who has already demonstrated the power of God as a miracle worker, he comes on the scene and he makes this claim that he will be the one who will bring on the year of the Lord's favor. Well, that became good news, didn't it? See, being a Jew in the first century Rome was not easy. They lived under the oppressive hand of the Caesar. This is so nice with this background music, isn't it? Sure, they were allowed to practice their religion, these Jewish people, but they were really still under the hand of, the, of their Roman oppressors. And they also lived under the oppressive and legalistic rules of their religious leaders, the Jewish leaders of the day. The demand of God's laws were, meant, were, were nearly as bad as the Roman laws that they were forced to follow. So to hear that this Messiah was now on the scene and he was now on their side... He was going to do something that no one else has been able to pull off for hundreds of years since David. And that is the freedom of Israel. Well, that was great news to every Jew on the scene. But Jesus didn't just come with a message about the rule of the kingdom of God backed up by the power of God. Number three, we also see this, but it's not as clear until much later in his ministry. Jesus solved our sin and death problem. This would be the ultimate freedom that Jesus came for. That's what really prevents our freedom. Not government, not religion, but these things, sin and death. It must have been totally exciting to live in Israel those days. I mean, just, just imagine yourself. You're washing dishes in the kitchen sink, and all of a sudden, you hear this rumbling, and it's getting louder, and it's getting louder. You're kind of looking out your window to see what's coming, and you look down the street, and you see this massive throng of people, this large crowd coming closer and closer to your door at your house. And, and so all of a sudden, it, it becomes not just a, a distant thunder. It becomes an immediate roar and rush of sound. It kind of sounds like the wave being done at a rider game. It's exciting. It's enthralling. And you look out the window and you see this massive crowd. And in the center, as it's going by you, you see this one person standing in the middle. And, and it, between the gasps and the cheers, you hear his name being chanted. Jesus, 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 Jesus. And it gets louder and louder and louder. 
And you quickly throw down your dish towel and you run out that front door of yours to join the throng of people that are, and you join the chanting, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Because you've heard of this miracle worker. You've heard that he's coming with freedom. And in the crowd, as you look around, you see the man that was from your village who was blind since birth and now he can see. You, you also look around the crowd and, and now you see the man, the, the, the kids all called Hopalong because he, he couldn't walk. He was paralyzed in one leg. But now he's jumping up and down, joining in the chant, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And then you see their next door neighbor in the crowd and, and her skin disease from her face, all over her arms and down to her toes, it's all clear. And she too is chanting, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But eventually the crowd passes and you realize you got to get back to your dishes. And so you go back home, back to the dishes, back to the routine, back to your normal everyday life. And normal is whatever normal is for you. Maybe it's a sink full of dishes. Maybe it's a strained marriage. Maybe it's a financial hardship. Maybe it's a persistent health issue, a stubborn habit maybe, an unforgiving sin. Maybe a nine-to-five grind or maybe another night of Netflix because there's nothing else to do that's exciting. Those normal things ebb and flow throughout our lives and they reveal to us what is actually the root of our problem. We sin. We sin. Why? Because human beings are born sinners. Those normal things about life don't make us sin, but they do draw out of us what we already are. We sin because we are sinners. And this kind of normal is what directs us, some people anyway, to religion. Because religion proposes to be able to offer a solution, a way of escape from our sins. And that's enticing to us at first. But the more we try to escape it, the more we realize that we're just trying to manage it. And it's a form of, just really another form of bondage that we're in. And to make matters worse, there is a lingering in our minds, the inevitable penalty of our sins, abandonment from God. Maybe God is no longer going to accept me. And what about at our death? I mean, if he abandons me my whole life, what about at death? Will it be heaven or hell for me? Celebrity magician and atheist Penn Gillette of Penn & Teller fame, uh, don't get me wrong, I really like this duo uh, in the realm of magic and illusion. But he says this, the only way to be truly happy in this world is to be an atheist. Because only an atheist lives for the here and now. He says that all the Mediterranean death cults like Christianity, Islam, and Judaism all bank on the fact that this world is horrible and we have to try to escape it. He says, you know, there is something liberating about atheism. As an atheist, in the end, you don't have to prove anything. You don't have to justify your behavior because in the end, nothing matters. So if he's right, and there is no God, then really, as a Christian, 
The burden is on us, isn't it? But the liberating claim of the Christian faith over all the other death cults of the Mediterranean is that Jesus solved our sin and death problem. And he's given us resurrection. The good news is that Jesus brought to us from the Father what we really need to experience freedom now and forever. And that is forgiveness of sin. That he can redeem my life from the normal so that I don't have to try to justify myself or my existence or even myself at the end when I meet my death. He does all that for me, doesn't he? That's the good news of the gospel of Christ. I know that may sound too good to be true, but that act of God in my life allows me to enjoy life here and now more than any atheist could ever do. Because there's the guarantee of a solution for my sin and death problem, the problems that are common to all human beings. A problem that no human being has a solution for except Jesus, the Son of Man. So how do we know that heaven is possible? Well, because Jesus proved it by his ultimate demonstration by the power of God to defeat death and rise from the grave. He did that for us. John 3.16, we all know it and we all believe it's true, but listen to it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not what? Perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. And then we have the promise, John chapter 11. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And the question is, do you believe this? Well, you know, we can say yes. But really, it's banking on who Jesus is, isn't it? That ultimate question. Who is Jesus to you? Is he the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that? Yes. So the burden of proof is no longer on me. It's on Jesus, and he's already answered. I am the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That means that for the Christian, everything, friends, centers on Jesus. Isn't that good news? Everything centers on him. And he calls me into that Christ-centered kingdom to live by his power so that I can live by his rule. That's the kingdom of God. That means that being a Christian isn't about going to church. It isn't about keeping my nose clean. It's not about working down at a soup kitchen or solving all the world's ills, but trying to, no, not trying, depending, resting on the finished work of Jesus. It's about being able to answer the question Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Have you answered that question these days? Do you know the answer? What about you online? It's about acknowledging who Jesus claimed to be and trusting that he has the power to enter into your life in the here and now and transform it forever by his divine power. That's good news. 
And as you learn to welcome him and depend on him and follow him, that divine power will manifest in changing you as a Christian person, a Christ-centered person. To the unbelieving person, that may not seem that attractive of a lifestyle because it will mean you having to give up your former life. It will mean being more conscious of sin than ever before, yet at the same time being way more conscious of the grace of God in your life. It will mean stopping some of the things you once enjoyed. Not everything, but some things. It will mean not always being able to make sense of things sometimes, but continuing to trust Him regardless. That's what we call walking by faith. It will also mean being rejected at times. And friends, living for Jesus may mean losing your life at the hands of an oppressor one day. It could mean that. But there is a confidence. A sweet confidence and courage to face the normal, to face even the insanity, to face yourself, to live honestly, authentically, and powerfully in the here and now because you are loved and accepted and forgiven by God forever. Hallelujah. That's good news. Not because of what you've done or can do, but because of the grace of God in Christ. That's the kingdom of God. So, what does being Christ-centered look like today? I don't know, what does, what does it look like to be focused on and give priority to and be motivated and passioned by Christ alone? Being Christ-centered will change the way you live. It will change the way you make decisions. It will change how you plan out your life. It, 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 it's, it's how you live in each part of your life network. If you've never seen this diagram up on the overhead here, this is what we call My Life Network. It represents the sum total of all the activities and relationships that we have in our individual lives. And every one of us has one. In the middle is me. In the middle of all those relationships and activities is me, or you. There was a time when everything was about the kingdom of me. And what I wanted out of my hobbies and interests, out of my family, my friends, my work, my church, my world, that too was all about me. But when you believed in Jesus, when you placed your full dependence on Christ to save you from your sins and death, Jesus' biggest miracle takes place in you. Christ, the Lord and Savior, The second person of the Godhead comes to live inside you by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, it is Christ in me. He comes to indwell us, to give us his power. Remember? So from now on then, life for you is about King Jesus demonstrating his power, that was point one, and his rule, that was point two, in you personally. In you, while you're engaged with your hobbies and interests, your family, your friends, your work, your church, your world. And by you living by the power and rule of King Jesus, you bring the kingdom of God into each of those different areas of your life network. Just naturally you do it. When you do, your prayers become Christ-centered. The power and rule of God changes your marriage and you will treat your spouse 
differently. The power and rule of God changes your family and you treat your kids differently. The power and rule of God changes your job and the way you work at that job. The power and rule of God then changes you as a friend and a neighbor and a citizen of this planet. When you are Christ-centered, the power and the rule of God changes why and how you come to church. You no longer come as a volunteer or as an attender. You come as a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ together with all the rest of us. We are a priesthood of all believers. It changes everything about us, friends. So as you are focused and prioritized and motivated and impassioned on making your life Christ-centered each and every day, it will transform every decision, every action within your life network to maximize the growth and the influence of his rule, his kingdom here on earth. And that's how we get the gospel to the ends of the earth. So when you wake up this morning, actually tomorrow morning, you're already awake, right? You're awake, right? Give me a yahoo! So when you wake tomorrow morning, keep your life network as a mental picture to help you remember where you are and help you to remember who you are in Christ as a Christian as a Christ-centered person, as a citizen of the kingdom of God. These things, my friends, are your keys to the kingdom of God. Before you leave today, later, we got a lot more to go yet. There's a little thing up here, a little coaster with My Life Network on it. I got a whole basket full of them. If you want one, I know we've given them out in the past. Some people still have them. Some people have them on their fridge when I go visit. Uh, Some of you may have lost it. Come pick up another one as a reminder to you that when you wake up in the morning, you are a Christ-centered person living in your life network for the kingdom of God with good news for everyone. Let's pray. Oh God, with all our hearts, we long for you. Come. And transform us to be Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, mission-focused people who magnify and glorify the name of Jesus everywhere we go. And we multiply disciples who will live like we do. Lord, be praised in our going today. Be praised in our life so that, Lord, your kingdom will come to this earth in every part that we touch. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.